0: We're in the middle of a series um, called Why the Church, and uh, we're dealing with questions that people ask about church. And today we're dealing with the question, what's the deal with the church and money? Now some of you, uh, especially those who were here last week, maybe at this point in time it could be excused for thinking, uh, you could have thought this one through a little bit more, Pete, like doing authority and power and then money, like in terms of like the the top three hot button issues in churches that's probably the top two, probably at that point in time. Um, and, and I have uh, felt the weight of that consideration this week didn't think about it when I uh, put these together, but um, I have felt the weight of that, and here's the bottom line: We at the project have been in trouble on both of these fronts uh, numerous times before, and I don't mean that we've blown it on it, I mean that we've had wrestling that we've had to do with uh, people in the church. Um, I actually had someone uh, a little while ago send me an email and tell me that I should never ever talk about money ever again in the church. They don't care, they're, 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 they're not at the project anymore. <laughs> All right, because the difficulty with not talking about something like that is that you're not actually talking about something that jesus talks about like if jesus talks about something we should talk about something and probably we should talk about something that jesus talks about about as much as he talks about it is that is that fair to say um he talks about a lot in fact jesus talks about money more than heaven and hell combined interesting kind of shows up all over the place and I actually think at the project, we don't even get close to talking about money as much as Jesus talks about it. Um, so today is, uh, is going to be classic project. And some of you might go, well, what is classic project? You say, well, classic project is we don't shy away from the tough issues and we just grapple and wrestle with what God says to us about them, not avoiding them, but, uh, but embracing them and seeing what God would have to say to us through them. Why do we do this? Let me give you a Three reasons. There's lots of good reasons, but here's three reasons. Here's the first one. We grapple with tough issues at the project because we know that everyone's fallen, no one's perfect, and we know that God uh, is going to cut across us. That's the reality of a fallen world. If if the world's fallen and imperfect and God's perfect, we know that He is actually going to cut across us sometimes and say things that are going to be against the grain. And that will actually be a good thing for us. If we're imperfect, we should expect that to be the case. I taught manual arts for many years, and uh, many of you have been taught this, that when you... Who's ever used a wood plane? Just put your hand up if you've ever used one. Now, if you've ever used a wood plane, you know that when you use a wood plane, you've got to go with the grain. And I used to get kids who had short haircuts, and when I was teaching them about going with the grain, I'd push my hand on their hair, before there was kind of no-touch policies, but I'd push my hand on their hair... And the hair would stick up as it pushes back. I said, that's what the grain of timber is like. You push it in the wrong direction, it sticks up. If you go the other direction, it stays flat. That's what going with the grain is. But we know as people who are still messy, who live in a world that's messy, that there's sometimes God's just going to push in a direction that's against the grain. True? True. A lot of times. I mean, this is you hear this in... Proverbs chapter 14, there's a way that seems right to a man but its end is the way to death. Now I mean what Proverbs is saying is if you go with the grain instead of against it, you're going to (laughs) die and it's going to end badly for you. The way that seems most natural is not the best way to go. Here's a second reason why I think we like to tackle tough things here at the project is uh, we actually need our internal narratives interrupted by Jesus. So everyone lives their life by a story. And we, we come into church today and everyone's got a story going on by which you're assembling all the bits of your life. And you've got a story that you're on. And uh, we, we need God to speak into that story and to reshape it and redirect it. Have you ever been in a situation where you're angry or anxious, upset, um, really hyper-concerned about something and you know it wasn't entirely right and you need someone to come in and break the narrative? Does anyone, anyone know what I'm saying? Sometimes you can even go to people and you go, man, give me something here because the direction I'm going is not a good direction to go. I need you just to interrupt the narrative and the story that I'm living right now because I, I know that it's not right but I can't get out of it. This is what we need Jesus to do to us regularly. Here's the third one. Um, why, Why is it good to grapple with harder things? Because you know God's cutting across you is always good for you and Him. Do you believe that? It's always good. There have been many, many times over the last six months where I've sat down to read Scripture and I've gone, God, I need you to interrupt what's going on for me. I need you to cut across me. Can you? Because I know that there are things in my life that aren't right and there's concerns that I've got right now and I need you to cut across me. I, um, let me give you an example. I, I got to speak, they interviewed me at the Acts 29 conference just recently. So was, I don't know, there's probably 350 people there, lots of ministry leaders. It's like, this is going to be really cool. I, I get to um, get asked a couple of questions about the project, get to share about what God's been doing and then they asked me a question about Restore Ministries which is our ministry that serves other churches outside of us in equipping them to get the the goodness of God into the details of life and um you know I people don't believe this when I say this to them I and mean, you probably won't but I get nervous before I get up and speak almost every time I don't think I I, I don't ever not be nervous there you go there's a double negative for you just going what did he just say um I I just get nervous. So here I am getting nervous and one of the things I'm getting nervous about the night before and even the morning of is I want people to think well of me, right? Now, that's problematic. Let's just put it out there. When you get concerned about people thinking well of you, you've kind of headed down a path that's not particularly helpful. Now, I got up on the uh, Saturday morning and I I thought this, I thought I need God to cut across me because this is wrong and I don't know how to get out. Does any, anyone know what I'm talking about at this point in time? Okay, so I opened my Bible, and I kid you not, the next verse I was up to in my Bible reading was Matthew 6, verse 1, which says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men. <laughs> Do you know what it did? Beautiful. Beautiful. Didn't walk out of it feeling rotten about myself. I was convicted, I needed to confess something. And I did that but didn't I wasn't downtrodden and discouraged and oppressed. Those words were good words and God squared me up and He got me in the right place to be able to share from a, from a good heart in partnership with Him when I got interviewed. God needs to cut across you. You need God to cut across you and whenever He does that, we know that it's going to be good. So... Here's a last caveat before we kick in today. Lots of caveats today. Uh, because you talk about authority and money with Australians to do with the church, and it just gets a bit bumpy. So here's the last caveat. My goal today in pre- preparing for today was to stay super, super close to Scripture. All right? Because at the end of today, you don't have to agree with me, but you do have to grapple with Scripture. Okay? Now, some of you go, oh, what's he got coming? Well, it's going to be okay. It's going to be good, right? But at the end of the day, like you can't... When someone talks about something and there's something clearly in Scripture and you go, I don't like it, you're not liking it actually doesn't change it. And, and the reality is that we live in a culture where people have opinions and not arguments. So you might actually walk out today and just go, I just don't agree with you. And I go, that's okay, you don't have to agree with me. There's nowhere in the Bible that says you have to agree with Peter Sondergeld. But there's lots of stuff in the Bible that says you need to grapple with what God says to you in Scripture. So if you don't agree with it and you think my, what I've presented this morning is not faithful to Scripture, so you go and do the work. Go and do the work. Don't just say you don't like it. Saying you don't like it is not an argument. <laughs> Saying you don't like it doesn't actually grapple with Scripture and what God said. There's lots of things in the Bible I don't like. And they're all good for me, <laughs> even though I don't like them. Does is, is everyone know what I'm, what I'm saying here? You, you with me? So we, we ought to trust God because He's good and He says good things and He's always up to good. And uh, we should grapple with what He says. So if there's something today that kind of, it's not my intention to press anyone's buttons, but if, it, if something does press your button, if it's what Peter said and it's some of his opinion, just let it fall like chaff. uh, You don't need to pay attention to it, but if it's actually something that God says, uh, you go and have it out with Him. You go and have it out with Him, you deal with what the Scriptures actually say. So, returning back to the question. (laughs) And this is, I'll tell you, here's the last thing I'll say. Uh, This topic has been pressing my buttons, all right? So we can all just have our buttons pressed together and we'll have a good time talking about it. Why do we need to give to the church? What's the deal with the church and money? Why are these two connected? Now, you don't have to go too far to know that the church and money have got a very messy history, as does the church and authority and power, like we talked about last week. I remember uh, one of the church fathers of the project early on was uh, Wynne's husband, Ted Hitsky, and uh, he, his line about leaders in the church is the temptations for leaders in the church for male leaders in the church, for gold, glory and girls. That was, uh, that was his line that he used to throw out there and basically last week and this week we're kind of talking about gold and glory. That's uh, really what we're talking about. It's two out of the three. You know, after all, money is the root of... Oh, you've got to be careful, right? Because that wasn't an exact quotation, right? money The love of money is the root of all evil, isn't it? But you're right. Okay, there's, there's a sense in which you're right, you kind of look at it and you just go, money seems to cause a whole bunch of trouble, both personally for people and in the church and corporately, it's a risky place. I mean, it's a love of money that's a problem, not money itself, it's what we do with it. You know, like power people go wrong here so quickly. There's lots of controls around money, policies around money, um, it can go wrong really, really quickly. The the security that money brings is a real temptation. You know, when I left teaching at uh, Toowoomba Christian College here, my uh, boss at the time came up to me and he said this to me. He said, Peter, how are you going to go moving from a more secure source of income to a less secure source of income? And I hadn't even thought about it. Now, I think it's, it's largely true. The two most secure sources of income that exist in, our, in Australia, I think, a health and education because people keep having children and we have lots of midwives to prove it in the project. Um, the, you know what my answer would be to that now? Patchy. How are you going to go moving from a more secure source of income to a less secure source of income? Patchy. I reckon, to be honest with you, if it was back in the manor days in Exodus, I would have been one of the ones gathering enough for two days ahead. And probably three days ahead. I probably would have been one of those. So what are we to do? If money's a problem, do we throw it out? No, not on your life. You just need to learn to use it well. So let's, um, let's hook in. Here's, I've got three points this morning. Here's the first one. The Bible connects money and the church. Just does. Um, so... If, if we were going to go to somewhere in the church where money is connected directly to God's people, what anyone, this audience participation type, what would we need to go to if we went kind of back into the Old Testament? Anyone like to have a punt? A punt, we shouldn't have a punt on a message on giving, but anyone like to have a guess? Tithing, right? Would that be fair enough? Let's go back and we should have a look at tithing. Um, and you, want, you just need to know that there are lots and lots of heavy hitters on tithing and there's lots and lots of books about it and, um, and people land on both sides of the fence here. What is undisputed is that tithing was a thing and it formally connected money and God's people. If you were an Israelite in the Old, in the Old Testament, you were to tithe, no question. Here's the uh, clear mosaic teaching on it. This is Leviticus 27, 30 to 33. Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth to it. Now what this is, is probably this is an allowance for people who grow perishable things that they're just not going to be able to get it to the temple in time to give to the Levite. So there was an allowance Um, sorry, I should say, rather than just to the temple, they couldn't get it to the tabernacle, which is uh, when this was around in um, Leviticus 27. They couldn't get it there in time. And so the law was, if you can't get it there in time, you can't get your stuff there, you can exchange it for money. But if you do that, you need to add 20% to it. Okay? Um, Let me keep going. And every tithe of herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that pass under the herdsman's staff should be holy to the Lord this is interesting, right? So the the rule here is, if you've got a bunch of sheep, you send them through a gate and every tenth one belongs to God. So you don't kind of sort out the weak ones and the strong ones and then give the weak ones. It's like, this is like a random, you give every tenth one that goes through, almost a protection for giving to God something that was a bit lame. And we actually see in the book of Malachi, in Malachi chapter 1, that that's actually what happened, that the priests would bring things that were lame and pathetic to God. Anyway, verse 33. One shall not differentiate between good or bad, neither shall he make a substitute for it. And if he does substitute for it, then both it and the substitute shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. Now, when you look across the uh, Old Testament instructions to do with the tithes, we actually see that it looks like there's three tithes. Uh, some people think there are three expressions of the one tithe, others think there are three distinct tithes. This commentator Calland actually makes the comment that Jewish rabbis have usually held that there were three tithes, uh, one for the priests and Levites, one for the communal meals and one for every third, every third year for the non-landed, i.e. the Levites, the aliens, the fatherless and the widows. Now... If you add up all of the tithes that the Israelites were called to give, the amount actually wasn't 10%, it was probably closer to 20 to 25% um, that, the, that the Levites were called to give. Sorry, the people were called to give uh, as their tithe. Um, which brings me to this, who were the tithes given to? This is Numbers 18, 21, 25 and 26. To the Levites, I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Moreover, you shall speak and say to the Levites, When you take from the people of Israel the tithe that I have given you from them for your inheritance, then you shall present a contribution from it to the Lord, a tithe of the tithe. Now, what, what is that passage saying? What it's saying is, um, there's a tithe that goes to the Levites, and then the Levites were to give a tithe of a tithe. <laughs> so they, everyone, it was all in. It was an all-plot. Um, the tithes were given to the Levites for their support because the Levites served in the tabernacle, in the temple, and they had no means of income, livelihood or inheritance to ensure their support. Um, and in return for the service which they serve, they were meant to receive the tithes of the people of Israel. Then the, the, uh, the Levites themselves would then give a tithe of a tithe. Now we've actually done this tithe of a tithe thing in the project since it started. So we give 10% of all of our giving, every year we give away to, to missions and, and to, to organisations outside of us to bless them. Um, we're now, uh, having signed up with Acts 29, we're giving 10% of, we're giving that 10% away to church planning so people can, uh, people can come to know Jesus, which we're pretty excited about. So this is the Old Testament um, system and it uh, leaves us with the question, well, what, what do we do with it? Um, do we need to do anything with it? Is it an Old Testament law uh, thing? And that's that's one direction people go. They say this is a mosaic law thing and it doesn't really apply to us and it's a strong argument in my view and it has lots of, uh, lots of significant backers um, and, and their kind of line is the law as mentioned has been superseded by Christ. Um, but I want to ask the question, is there a larger principle that's actually going on here? And then, <laughs> what does Jesus say about it? And then, what does the, uh, the New Testament say about it, the early church, if we go on in the Scriptures? Now, if you go right back to Genesis chapter 3, the story of Cain and Abel, really interesting things going on there. Now, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground that Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Now, what's going on here? Well, I think at the very least uh, we can say that Cain and Abel think that it's appropriate to bring an offering to God. Is, is this scripture teaching tithing? I don't think so. It's not teaching tithing but it is, I think, teaching you that there's something right and appropriate. And the Old Testament speaks often about giving of your first fruits. So you give God the cream, not what's left over. You don't give God the dregs, you give Him the cream. Uh, that's the Old Testament kind of um, um, principle there. Uh, you can go along to Genesis chapter 14. There's this strange king called Melchizedek who shows up. Uh, Abram has just gone and rescued Lot, his family and his possessions from being taken away captive. He gets all of them back. Uh, and he gets a whole bunch of other possessions and he shows up, uh, he meets up with this Melchizedek who is a priest king of the Lord Most High, Genesis 14 says. And what does he do? He gives a tithe, he gives 10%, a tenth of, of the takings <laughs> of the warfare to the priest. That's interesting. Is, is that text teaching about tithing? And I just go, well, i I don't know. It could just be teaching about a thing that actually happened. But I think the one thing for you just to note at this point in time is I think there's something going on. There's a, there's a principle going on that when it comes to God, you bring the cream of the crop, <laughs> not the dregs, and you, you commit that to Him and you give that to Him. You give, you give something back to God. You know, this is Exodus 23, verse 19. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. That's that's the principle. Now, are these texts teaching the tithe? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe not. They could just be telling a story. But I do think they highlight this notion about first fruits, is that you bring to God the best that you have. You know, we, we can't really do it because the paymaster takes uh, the Australian government's cut out of your wage. But in some ways, if you could get to that first and give him... The first bit, that's the kind of thing that we're talking about. That's the kind of thing I think the Old Testament talks about. Now, what does Jesus say about tithing? Oh, not much. <laughs> Just not much. You say, well, where does Jesus connect money and the church? Well, uh, He does not And some of you go, oh, that's a, that's a problem. Well, it would be if we only had the Gospels, but we have other stuff in the Bible, so we can get a little bit more help. But let me just say this, there's only two times in all four Gospels where Jesus mentions the church. So it's probably not surprising that Jesus doesn't uh, talk about the church and money in direct connection. What does He say? He does engage with tithing, interestingly, uh, in two places. Uh, Matthew 23, verse 23 and Luke eleven 42, they're actually the, um, the same saying of Jesus. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. Like they, they are just well attuned to what tithing is, right? They're tithing their spice rack. That's what they're doing. And you have neglected the weightier matters of the Lord, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Listen to what Jesus says. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. What's he saying? Well, he's not specifically teaching about tithing, but he's actually saying you should keep tithing and you should also address the things that you're not doing. And the things that they're not doing are mercy, being faithful and being loving and just. Is everyone with me? So at this point, I mean, people kind of uh, debate about what Jesus is doing here. And, but I think you can kind of say at least Jesus is saying, look, I'm not cancelling out tithing. I'm just saying you should have just done that. But the focus here is actually not on tithing. It's on what you're not doing, which is love and mercy and faithfulness. Um, Jesus didn't have an issue with what they were doing. He had an issue with what they weren't doing. All right. How you doing? You doing okay? I hope you're doing Okay. When you get into 1 Corinthians uh, 9, you get some more stuff about money in the church and then 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, which we'll get to in a little bit, but just um, read through this one. This is is the bit that I reckon is, I'll get to my particular position in a minute, but this was the text that made me think, huh, like there's a bit more of a stronger argument for tithing than what I actually thought and it's uh, this scripture here. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 7 to 11, Paul's arguing his rights as as an apostle, he's defending himself and he's arguing his rights only then to say, I'm not going to take up my rights. And so his actual point in this section is uh, that you would give up your rights for other people. Um, He's teaching that principle but I want you to notice the argument that's embedded within what he's saying here because it's It's quite uh, telling, I think. And what you actually see here in this uh, scripture is a connection between Old Testament workers, the Levites, and New Testament pastors in the church, okay? Here's 1 Corinthians 9 verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the ploughman should plough in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Interesting. He goes on. If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service, listen to this, get their food from the temple? We just read that before. And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way... The Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Interesting. Now that, that for me, I, I've kind of gone, tithe's a good principle. This one's just pushing me a little bit closer to that. Is any, any, can you see that? It's, it's like Paul's drawing a direct connection between the Old Testament Levites and priests getting their living from the tithe of people and New Testament pastors and gospel workers getting their living from people they serve. Now, he doesn't take up that right. I mean, he's, he's well-known as, uh, as a tent maker. But notice he's, he's just pointing that out at this point in time. Uh, we, we see this kind of thing in other places in the New Testament as well. Galatians 6, verse 6, Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Uh, 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, Quotes the muzzle, muzzling the ox as it treads out the grain. Now, some of you, quite rightly, as you look at this 1 Corinthians 9 here, uh, you just go, yeah, there's no percentage there. And there's not. (laughs) There isn't a percentage there. Um, All right. Summarise the first point. The next two points are shorter. What are we to do with it? Good question, right? Um, here's, Here's my position. I don't, I don't think it's binding <laughs> and I think uh, I'm going to give you my particular position um, but I just want you to know you're free to differ. Now all I ask if you differ is that you don't differ because you don't like it but you differ because you've grappled with scripture and you've landed somewhere else. I'm really, I'm really chilled with that, like that's totally okay and there's some theologians I respect very, very highly um, who land in a different place. And I'm totally cool with that because I read their stuff and I go, yeah, you know what, you've grappled with the scriptures. I don't agree with the way that you're using them, but that's okay. That's okay. Now, we can land in different places. Here's, um, here's my personal conviction. My personal conviction is that I think 10% of your wage, your gross wage, should go to the local church and you should give over and above that to other causes. That would, be, that would be my particular position and I think that, in my view, and you can, dis, you can disagree, in my view, these scriptures, I think, trend in that direction. Um, tithe to your local church, support the gospel workers, give over and above that. Now, there's a massive danger. I've just said something, You just, you've, there's probably stuff just bouncing around in your head right now. <laughs> Maybe even just oh, Peter would say that because he's getting paid by the church all right? And and that's, that's okay, you just, you just have to grapple with it, you have to grapple with it. Let me tell you some other things that could bounce around, it's like, oh okay, this is good, now I know, 10% is mine, 10% is God's and 90% is mine. We can just be really clear about that. Um, you know, maybe even at this point you just go, oh okay, we just give 10% and that's going to assuage my con- my conscience, you know, I'm going to feel better about it because I know that I'm over the line. God's going to be pleased with me. Maybe there's some of you who are doing that and you kind of there's a sense of pride inside of you where you just kind of go, I'm, I'm doing really good because I've nailed the 10%. Um, I've, I've kind of satisfied the law. Uh, we can end up in a place where we go, I've got freedom with the rest of it. Uh, we could just be really tight in this. Like you can just be really tight and have an issue with money and just go, finally, I found out what's right and what's wrong, and now I can just do that, and then I don't have to give any more. Um, and, and then you've even got people, probably in the church here, that God would call to give more than 20%, sorry, more than 10%, probably more than 20%. And if you just went 10% and you kind of lock in on it, you're going to miss out on that. Now, when we get into the New Testament, if you want to play the percentage game, it gets really messy, <laughs> all right? Work with me on this one, right? See, if you can... See if you can work out these percentages. I'm going to read it. You have to shout out what the percentage is when you get the chance. He, John the Baptist on repentance, who has two coats, let him share with him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. What percentage is that? 50%. All right. He just blew 10 out of the water. All right. 50%. Here's the next one. As Zacchaeus, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. What percentage? 50%. The rich young ruler, who we'll get to again in a minute. Jesus says to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. How many percents that? 100. See, I'm freaking out a little bit at this point in time. Here's the last one. Luke 14, 33, Jesus says, So therefore, whoever of you does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. What percent? 100. <laughs> you see the problem? Like if you want to play the kind of law, kind of percentage game that you see in the Old Testament, you're just getting in strife as soon as you hit the New Testament. Because here's the reality. Jesus connects money and your spirituality. He just does. What you do with money says something about where you're at spiritually. Here's Mark 12, verse 41 to 42. This is almost like... Jesus the stalker verse okay you'll see why I'm saying that and Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box (laughs) many people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny would you be awkward that's a weird spot right he's just Jesus has come in he's whoa okay well that's where they're putting cash in I'm going to go and sit right next to it. I'm going to watch everyone that puts something in. Is, is, would anyone be awkward about that? You would be, right? Yeah, you know, straight up. Just, this is like low-hanging fruit. We're not getting too intense or complex. It's like, straight up, you've got to go, Jesus is interested in what's going on with our money. True? Is, it, is, is that okay? Is that, you give me a nod if you think that's okay for me. To, okay, all right. What about this one? This is the story of Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus? Uh, Many of you would know. He's a short guy. Wanted to see Jesus. Crowd was too tall. He was too short. There's a tall tree. So I'll climb up in the tree. Jesus goes over to the tree, says to Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your place for dinner. The religious people grumble, which is usually a sign that Jesus is doing the right thing uh, when people are grumbling. And uh, and then this happens. And Zacchaeus stood up, assumedly in his house, and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I'll restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, listen to what Jesus says, Today, salvation has come to this house. Why? Because he started giving cash away. You see that? Like, that's where Jesus affirms, he goes... Something really genuine and deep is actually happening in this person because it's actually affecting his wallet. You see that? All right. And then the rich, the rich young ruler, right? We, uh, I mentioned this uh, just before, you know, comes along to Jesus. He says, how do I get eternal life? How do I inherit it? Jesus says, do the commandments. He says to Jesus, that's what I do, square it away, all good. Jesus says, go and sell all your stuff. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Now, there is a connection that Jesus is making here between what you do with your possessions and your spiritual state. And this, and I say this not as an insult, (laughs) this guy has made an idiot decision. So, students at school used to call each other idiots and I looked up the dictionary definition one day and it said, incapable of making a rational decision. I'm just going, well, there's not many people who qualify for that, all right, because everyone at some point does make some kind of sensible decision. But this is a really bad one, isn't it? What has he just traded? He He has probably lived for less than 100 years and he's just traded everything that he owns for eternity... No one should make that deal. <laughs> you should never make that deal, ever. It's a dumb deal. You know, we don't hear anything else about this guy, but do you know what? It's entirely likely, based on what we know, that this man, and I'm not saying this to scare, it's just a statement of fact, this man is probably in hell right now because he didn't want to actually deal with his possessions the way that Jesus told him to. Now that, that is fearsome, is it not? Is anyone with me on that? that's intense. That's really intense. Now, this feeds really nicely into something that Jesus said in uh, Matthew chapter 6, which I want to read. Um, Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but... Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, I won't have a show of hands to he goes to financial planners. But Jesus is the best financial planner ever. Okay? And what he's actually saying in this scripture here is you are going to lose everything that you own. Every bit of money that you have, every possession that you have, you are going to lose it. I mean, we've countless stories in the fires that happened recently um, about people saying, I've lost everything. Well, that happens every day when people die. They lose everything. Uh, They don't have anything left over. And you know what Jesus is saying here? You need to invest His money because it all belongs to Him so that you end up getting treasure on the other side. Randy Alcorn says, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. That's that's what Jesus is talking about here. So do you want a big treasure in heaven? See so this it's it comes down at, at one level, it comes down to an investment thing. You want to invest here and lose it all, or do you want to invest there and get it? And get a treasure? There are so many scriptures about this. Matthew five forty six, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Eternal rewards. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. This is Matthew 6, that your giving may be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. We can send it ahead, we can't take it with us. Here's what Richard Halverson uh, says, Jesus Christ said more about money than about any other single thing because when it comes to a man's real nature, or a woman's real nature, money is of first importance. Money is an exact index to a man or woman's true character. All through Scripture, there is an intimate correlation between the development of a man's character and how he handles his money. Now, if you're anything like me, you're probably a little uncomfortable with that and probably in a consumerist Western society, we probably ought to be ongoingly a little uncomfortable with that. Now, here's where we're going to end. So we started with the idea that tithing in the Old Testament connects money and God's people. We saw how that kind of led into uh, the church being connected um, to uh, to our money. And then we looked at how Jesus connects your spiritual well-being to the way that you handle money. And here's where we're going to end. God connects His grace to your generosity. This is where it lands You know, we can talk about tires and percentages and we can get into all sorts of problems. And and the greatest fear, and this has been my prayer over the last 24 hours, is that not one person would walk out of here today feeling compelled to give. Because that is not the way that God wants you to see it. It's not meant to be a compulsion for you. And the best place to go to see this, I think, is uh, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And I would really encourage you... Take the time this week to slowly read through Second Corinthians eight and nine and meditate on it and wrestle with God with it, right? Because the thing about Second Corinthians eight and nine, and I think the thing about the whole test the whole New Testament is not only do we not get out of it by just giving ten percent, but God's going, It all belongs to me, and I became poor for you. I am the most generous giver to you, and I want you to be like me. <laughs> so be really generous. So don't play the percentage game. Let's read it. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He's talking about money. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So in terms of the kingdom, in terms of the stuff that God's up to, you're a generous sower. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion. That's really important. So I don't want you to go out today and go, oh, Pete put the heavy on me and he twisted my arm and now I've got to give some more money. It's like, no, no. That is not New Testament giving. For God loves a cheerful giver. Are you a cheerful giver? God loves you. If you cheerfully give financially, Oh, he just loves it. He delights in it. He sees you giving stuff away and he just goes, oh, you go get him." You know, you, you just bless him. You know, like, do you think that God, who in the person of Christ, he gave up everything that was his, all the riches of heaven, he became poor for our sake. Do you not think that when his children have got some cash and they're generous, he's not just going to love that? Is he just going to love it? Verse 8, listen to this, the grace doesn't end on the cross, it's real time. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. What's He going to do? Oh, well, it's just going to shell out some cash your way. Why? Well, so you can just sow bountifully. <laughs> so you can be really generous. So it's like, sometimes I think we think God's like some kind of tight water. It's like, if I give this away, I'm not going to have anything left. You know, doesn't the proverb say, this is a random one, but doesn't it say, "He who, who gives to the poor loans to God and God will repay him? God, God will look after you. He will see to it that you will have what you need so that you can be generous. That's what this passage is talking about. Verse 9, As it is written, he is dis- distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Verse 11 again, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Well, I'm just about done. Um, God's heart is to be generous to you. How do you know that? Because He's been insanely generous to you in the person of Jesus who died on the cross for you. There is no question about God's generosity toward you. Well, what does God want you to do? Be like Him. (laughs) Receive His grace, receive His generosity, be generous, be generous. How much? Well, here's here's one guideline for you. Generous enough to protect yourself from the virus of materialism. That's how generous you need to be, and for some of you, that's going to mean forty percent. You know, you know, it gets its hooks into you, right? We all live in this marketing culture. If you just, you know, the things that we need, no one needed ten years ago. True, they just didn't. Here's the. Um, Scripture I want to leave you on, and um, maybe the band can come up. One Timothy six verse seventeen to nineteen. As for the rich in this present age, which is probably about ninety five percent of us, charge them not to be haughty, don't be proud about it, not nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. And God's got your best interests at heart. It's like don't don't put all your trust in riches. But on God. And who is this God? This God is the one who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Some of you might go, okay, so is it bad to be rich? It's like, no, God's been generous to you, and you should just enjoy it. Does it mean that we can't enjoy having a mountain bike? Not at all. God provides things to us to enjoy. He is He's made us rich. But what are the rich people meant to do? And this is the governor right, this is the governor, verse 18, rich people are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This is the antidote to materialism, is giving. How much do you need to give? Well, you need to work that out. That's, that's what the scripture says. that on the first day of the week, everyone should... It's talking about a special gift for uh, a church in Jerusalem, but the principle holds that on the first day of the week, you should sit down and work out what the Lord would have you give. And here's my encouragement to you, you probably need to give just a little bit more than what you think. Like if your giving doesn't affect your lifestyle just a little bit, you probably aren't quite giving enough. <laughs> it just needs to press in on press in on that a little bit. We we trust in riches. We uh we have lots of insurance. We uh, we prefer cash reserves rather than trust. We spend to feel better. We uh think and it's it's uh It's good to think about it, but we can get obsessive about our retirement portfolios. You know, our our tight grip on money can deceive us into thinking that we're going to be okay, even though the scriptures say that trusting in riches is, is uncertain trust. two caveats just to finish really quickly. Here's the first one. If you're married to uh, an unsafe spouse, uh, this message is not meant to create a whole bunch of headache and trouble for you in your marriage, okay? Um, So you just need to work out, you need to be faithful to the Lord with what you've got, uh, what you've got access to uh, and we we are not here to create trouble in your marriage. Here's the uh, second caveat. Second caveat is this, I'm not expecting you to go out and just give a whole bunch of money and go broke. Okay, that's that's not what I'm talking about. But I am talking about this: God calls you to be a, to, God calls you to be financially generous, and some of us are too jacked up with debt, and we've extended ourselves too far, and we've bought too expensive a car and too big a house to be able to be generous. And whenever there's a clash between structures in your life and what God's calling you to do, you just need to work out how to change those structures so that you can be faithful to what God's called you to, to do and to be and God's called you to be generous. Is that, does that make sense? So some of, some of us probably, there's just a little bit of structural change that needs to happen. So I'm not saying go out and grab all your money and end up on the breadline. But I am saying that God has been extraordinarily generous with you and he calls you to be generous. So you, and it might take you a little while, you just need to work out how to do that. (laughs) How to follow the calling that uh, that he's called you into.